This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. Hey, good morning. My name's Chris. I'm the pastor here at Christian Chapel. It's good to see you on Palm Sunday. And before we jump into our message, I want to share a chapel praise story with you. So in 2023, we're sharing stories of what God has done in our community. If you have those, you can send them in to us at praise at christianchapel.com. Um, today's story comes from Emily Orth, one of our college students. Emily said, last fall, I noticed I had a cyst or some kind of benign growth on my right arm. It was under my skin and never bothered me. I ignored it for several months, which is the privilege of being in college, right? When something's wrong, you just go on with life. But uh, she said, earlier this year, it started to grow to about three times the original size. It was infected, inflamed, extremely sensitive, causing me a lot of discomfort to do simple everyday tasks. I went to the dermatologist due to the pain and discomfort, and the doctor injected a steroid, prescribed antibiotics for me to take for two weeks. They also scheduled a surgery for two weeks out to remove it and told me this was the only permanent solution for my condition. As I waited for surgery, the medicine seemed to make it better, but it was nowhere near 100%. I'm a student at Oral Roberts University, and the week of my appointment, there was an opportunity for prayer during one of our on-campus services. The pastor that spoke shared that he felt led to pray specifically for healing for people with cysts. I immediately stood up and my friends started to pray for me, but I did not feel instant healing in that moment. After the prayer, the pastor asked everyone to check their ailment and wanted anyone who knew they had been healed to come up front and share their testimony of what God had done. I checked my arm and did not see any difference, so I stayed in my seat. One week later, my mom and I went back for my dermatologist appointment before my surgery. When the nurse came in to examine me, she could not find the spot where the cyst had been so prevalent just two weeks prior. The doctor came in, conducted a more thorough search, and could not find the spot in my arm. She said she could not find anything, and that a case this serious does not just disappear. There was no surgery needed because there was nothing to remove. The cyst was gone. There's no bump under the skin. I've had no pain. I believe God started his healing work in my body when my friends prayed for me. My mom was so excited by the doctor's report that she jumped in and immediately began to tell the doctor about the healing service, the prayer, and everything the Lord had done in the last couple weeks. I'm thankful and amazed by God's consistent faithfulness in my life. And so each week when we're sharing those, we're doing two things. One, we are saying, thank you, Lord, that you still work and move in supernatural ways, that you release gifts of healing and provision and salvation. And then two, we're praying, will you do it again? And so today I'm going to lead us in a prayer in just a moment, asking God to uh, help us express our gratitude in appropriate ways, but then also asking him to do those same things again. Today I want to pray some very specific prayers for those of you who are in the room who are online with us, that um, in the next few days, this week, this month, you have been told this is the only course of treatment for the sickness, the disease, the injury, the the surgery is on the horizon, the, the chemo is there, whatever the treatments might be in the path that has been prescribed, and today we're just going to stop and pray, God, will you intervene and make those things not even necessary? Will we continue to hear stories confirmed by doctors who have given us a diagnosis, who've prescribed the treatment, and then who they themselves testify to the miracles that God has performed? 
And we believe what he's done for Emily, what he's done for so many others, he can continue to do again. So if that's you, uh, feel free to to reach out, grab the hand of the person next to you, and just ask them to pray with you. Stick your hand up. Somebody beside you is going to put their hand on your shoulder, and we're just going to pray that God will release those gifts of healing. Jesus, we come to you, and we thank you for Emily's story. We thank you, Lord, that you uh, showed up in a supernatural way and brought permanent and complete healing to her. Lord, we thank you that healing is a gift that you give. It's not something we earn, we deserve, or we can manipulate or control or in any way. And yet, Lord, we see the scriptures telling us that if we're sick, we are to seek prayer. If we have a need, we're to bring it to you. And so, Jesus, today we come and we ask, will you continue to release those gifts of physical healing among us? Lord, you see those who uh, they have received the diagnosis, they have heard the prescribed treatment or intervention that is necessary. And Lord, we're praying today that before those appointments are complete, Before those treatments begin, before the surgeries occur, will you release supernatural healing that is confirmed by the doctors who have been the ones who diagnosed it and prescribed it? Jesus, we pray that in those spaces you would just begin to release healing, you would restore, you would renew. God, you would mend back together everything that sickness, disease, and injury have torn apart. Holy Spirit, we invite you to release that gift of healing among us today in supernatural ways. And as we receive that healing and receive that confirmation, we will give you all of the glory, all of the honor, and all of the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Today we are continuing our way through the book of Acts. The story of Acts is the story of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the church. And so we're just kind of working our way through it story by story and seeing not only what does it tell us about what happened then, but also how does it prescribe what should be happening for us now. So if you have a Bible, we'll be in Acts chapter 2 today, and we're going to explore what it means to be created for community. And so kind of where we're picking up the story is after the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has been poured out. Peter has got up. He's explained to the crowd what happens. 3,000 people are added to the church on that day. And then we get this really short description of what their new community looks like. And so what, what I hope we will understand today is that we are still created for community. The call to Jesus is always a call into relationship with other people. And so as we we kind of work our way through, there's going to be two primary ways that you are probably uh, most likely to hear the description of community in Acts 2. Um, The first way is you're to hear it as kind of, is it a description of the community we currently have at Christian Chapel or wherever church you call home or whatever ministry you want to evaluate? And and if you hear it that way, if you hear it kind of in a, a big church organizational type way, then you're going to be tempted to only evaluate and apply it from a you looking at someone or something else. So you can hear Acts 2 and think, okay, this is a description of community. Does Christian Chapel meet those standards? Does this church meet those standards? And if not, what do they need to do better? Now, that is, that's a worthy application of this passage, but what I want to encourage you to do today is a, a little more personal application. As you hear this description of the community you're created to live in, I want you to ask the question, is this my experience of community? And if it's not, don't look for someone else to blame, but instead just ask the question, what can I do to make that 
my experience of Christianity. Because you'll never find a perfect Christian community. You'll never find, you know, and, and the reason is because we're all part of it, right? Um, and, and if you found a perfect one, you would mess it up. Uh, so, so we just, we kind of are coming in with humility and this understanding of we're created for community. The scriptures are going to describe what that community looks like. And we're just going to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us and tell me if there are areas where I'm not experiencing that, what can I do to open my heart and to begin to experience that in really life-giving and meaningful ways? So if you have a Bible, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 is where we'll start. We'll read through verse 47. If not, it'll be here on the screen for you to read along with me. Verse 42, it says, They, the the new believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Acts 2 lays out more than a a description of communities we've said. It's a a prescription of what kind of community we should still be living in. So today we'll see six characteristics of Christian community and ask the question, is this my experience? And if not, what can I do to make it? The first characteristic we see is, is it is a rooted community. Acts 2 verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, remember, this is the the birth of the church. So this story predates the writing of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The earliest church did not have the gospels in written form as we have them. They didn't have all of Paul's letters. Paul isn't even a Christian at this point in the church story. And so when it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, what it means is they devoted themselves to sitting and listening to the actual apostles who had walked with Jesus. And the apostles' teaching at that time was the teaching of Jesus. They told all that Jesus had told them. They taught all that Jesus had taught them. They taught about the nature of the kingdom. They taught about what it meant to belong to the kingdom. They taught about how you came into the kingdom. They taught about Jesus. They taught about who he was and what he did. They taught about his life and his death and his resurrection. They taught about how he had ascended into heaven and how he had sent the Holy Spirit to them. The Christian community is always a community that is rooted in the word of God. And now now we can have all other kinds of experiences of community in our life. You do and I do, right? There are are experiences of community built off of our hobbies, built off of our interests, built off of our stage of life, built off of do we have kids and if so, how old are they and then what do they enjoy doing and who who stood in line to take all our money so our kids can do that. And we've got all these communities that are built around that. You've got communities built around if you work out or, or what you eat or what you like to eat, communities around where you live, your educational background ground, your income level, communities built around the teams you cheer for, the athletes you love, the politicians you vote for, the parties you promote, whatever it is, we've got all of these lesser experiences of community, but the thing we know in each of those areas is they're all temporary and they're all transient, and the moment our interests change, those community ties typically begin to fade away. You know, for, for example, we've got a member of our staff who's into CrossFit, and he has a big CrossFit community. I don't have a CrossFit community. Because I don't do CrossFit. And he'll come in and he'll tell me about his workouts and I'll tell him that's stupid and nobody should be doing that. And he's like, we did 873 burpees. I'm like, what are you training for? Like, is there a war coming? What are we we doing? I don't get it. But but why did they do it? Because they've all drank the Kool-Aid. 
right? And they're all in there together, and they love it, and they adore it, and they go after it. Now, I've got other communities that I'm a part of that other people would roll their eyes at, right? Communities where I'm all in in something that somebody else would think is ridiculous. But here's the thing. None of those communities last. They are all temporary. They're all transient. They all eventually fall away because they're held together by temporary interests, temporary abilities. The community of Christ that we're called into, the thing that makes it last is that it's rooted in the scriptures. This is what Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 7. He says, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a man who builds his house on a rock. And the storms can come and the winds will blow, but it will remain because it's built on a solid foundation. This is why, as followers of Christ, we have to make sure our connection to Christian community is not just a connection built off of, well, everyone at that church is in my same economic level. Everyone at that church votes like I vote. Everyone at that church educates their kids like I educate my kids. Everyone at that church likes the things that I like. They cheer for the right teams. They go to the right places. They eat the right kind of food. If our connection to church is built on temporary things, then that will become a temporary community. But if we are rooted in the scriptures, if our lives are built on, sustained, guided, and molded by the scriptures, we will be held together. This is what enables the church to be the most beautifully diverse organization, the most beautifully diverse group of people in the world. Because it's not primarily about our nationality. It's not about the color of our skin. It's not about who you vote for or how you vote. It's not about how rich or poor, educated or uneducated you are. It's about your connection to Jesus Christ as revealed in the scriptures. And so if we're going to be a church rooted in the scriptures, you and I have to be individuals rooted in the scriptures. We have to read the word. We have to study the word. We have to submit to the word. We have to allow it to mold and guide our thoughts, our actions, and our relationships. And as we do that, as we devote ourselves, as we give ourselves to the apostles' teaching, we will find our feet are firmly planted on a solid rock, and we are held together no matter what outside forces come against us, no matter how the enemy attacks to try to pull us apart. Christian community is community rooted in the word. The next thing you see as you read that description of the early church community is they were a community that was together. It says they devoted themselves to fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. The Greek word koinonia is what we translate as fellowship in this passage. It's a word used to describe not just that they hung out, not just that they were friends, not just that they enjoyed some meals together, but it's a word that describes a unique connection that Christians have in a community of faith with God and with each other, right? Our source of fellowship is rooted first in our fellowship with God. The reason that Christians get along is not because we are naturally nicer or more polite than anyone else. The reason we get along and are held together in community is because Jesus has restored our fellowship with God. And from a position of fellowship with God, you are now open and able to enjoy fellowship with each other. It's a gift that God has given to us. It says that they were devoted to being together. They were also devoted to the breaking of bread and prayer. The breaking of bread is a term you see used throughout the New Testament to describe one of two things and sometimes both. Sometimes it means just simply people are coming over and you're having dinner. And other times it means you're receiving communion together. 
In the early church, it often meant somebody came over for dinner and you shared a meal and then you shared communion together. In this context specifically, it's referring to they fellowshiped, they were together often, and part of their togetherness was communion and prayer. So again, it's not just a time to hang out, it's not just a time to be together, to talk about all the things going on in the world. It's a time of intentional Christian fellowship defined by communion, a reflection on what Jesus did, and prayer, a submission of all of our needs to him together. And when we are bound together in that kind of connection, we experience the community Jesus designed us for. Now, now what we have to understand this morning is the call to Jesus is always a call to community. As you read through the New Testament, you cannot find an example of someone who puts their faith in Christ and then willfully, deliberately, repeatedly stays in isolation from other believers. If you are a Christian, you will be connected with other Christians. The idea of I say yes to Jesus and to hell with the rest of you is not a New Testament principle, right? Just if, in case you thought it was. It's not. It's not in there anywhere. The, the call is I'm following Jesus and now I'm going to walk with other believers, And I understand that's hard, and I understand that's difficult. And the temptation to be an isolated Christian is probably easier to give into and easier to deceive yourself that you're succeeding at it at this point in history than it has been at any point in history. Because you have an endless amount of podcasts on your phone. You can hear the greatest preachers in the world. You don't need to go to a local church to do that. You can experience the greatest worship songs and bands in the world. You don't need to go to a local church to do that. You can give from the convenience of your home. You don't need to participate in a local congregation to do that. You can send in prayer requests online. You don't need to participate in a local congregation to do that. And so the the temptation is, well, it's easier for me to take all the parts of community I like and to consume them on my time according to my preferences. And, And I'll admit, it is much easier to listen to a podcast while you're driving to work or working out than it is to get up and come to church on a Sunday morning. It is easier to cultivate your Spotify playlist with only the worship songs that you like so you don't ever have to listen to one you don't. And then not only that, but you can adjust the volume to your preferred level, right? And there's not some dumb pastor saying, put in earplugs, get over it, right? You just, you don't have to deal with that nonsense. You can do it all at your level. You can, and all of this, it's never been easier to think I can get it all on my own. And yet scripturally, this is a foreign concept. There is no idea that that there would be Christians who exist on islands or in isolation. The call to Jesus is always a call into community. And community always requires other people. Now, now that is hard and that is difficult. Because you, you know, just like me, the space where you are never annoyed is when you're alone. Right? Like, I, I, don't think in my, I don't think I've ever lost my temper when I'm by myself. I've never spoken words I had to apologize for when I'm by myself. Because no one can hear the words I speak, right? It doesn't mean they don't come out. It just means no one hears it or hears it. So I I get it. It's easier. And and then sometimes if we've been hurt in church, there's that extra motivation of like, well, 
If I go back there, last time I, I got hurt in a friendship, I felt betrayed, I felt let down, I felt all of these, all of that can be true, all of that can be valid, but those are things to work through, not, to things, not reasons to stop participating in community. We are called together. It says the early church devoted themselves to fellowship. With the same spiritual discipline that they embraced the apostles' teaching, they embraced the fellowship of believers. It wasn't, as long as you embrace the apostles' teaching, you're okay. It was, no, you need this, and then you need each other, and you need to join together in communion, and you need to join together in prayer. And that call remains the same on our lives today, regardless of our preference, regardless of our personality, and regardless of our experience. We are all called to community. The next thing we see in the early church is that it was a supernatural community. Acts 2 verse 43 says, Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. As we work through the book of Acts, we will see stories of supernatural healing, stories of guidance, stories of God's deliverance. We will see uh, dead people who are raised to life. We'll see all these incredible things. But what we see from the earliest description of the church community is it was a place where the supernatural signs and wonders of God were not just stories of old that they told, but they were current experiences that they shared. Christian community is never meant to be just another form of cultural connection. It's not just to be a place where you like the people and so you go hang out. Christian community from its inception to its fulfillment is a supernatural community. We have been instituted by the God who spoke the world into existence. We are based on the work of Jesus Christ. We believe in his virgin birth, in his sinless life. We believe in his sacrificial death and his resurrection. We believe that he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. We believe he will return to judge the living and the dead. We believe he sent the gift of the Holy Spirit to his people to fill us with power to release supernatural signs and wonders in the world. We believe that healing, provision, deliverance, guidance are things that didn't just happen once upon a time, but are the daily experience and expectation of everyone who follows follows Jesus. When someone participates in Christian community, there must be a supernatural expectation to it. We cannot control those supernatural experiences. We can't manipulate them. We can't make them happen, but we can expect them. We can long for them. We can ask for them. And when we receive them, we're going to celebrate them unapologetically. Regardless of how it fits in culture, regardless of the, the, the reactions of those in the world around us, we believe that we are men and women created in the image of God, restored to fellowship with the Father through Jesus Christ, full of the Holy Spirit, and that as we share the gospel, he still confirms his message with signs and wonders. Amen. And so we seek it, we make space for it, and we celebrate it when it happens. Christianity was never meant to feel like a, a lecture hall on a Sunday morning. Right, we're not giving historical lectures on this is who Jesus was and this is why you should try to be like him. We are coming into a living, breathing experience of the Spirit of God in real, personal, powerful ways. And there's a special experience of that Spirit that happens when we're together. And in that space, we're going to remember God is supernatural. And we are longing for him to come and continue to pour out that supernatural power on our lives. 
So, so for some of us, that idea of a supernatural community, that can be a bit of an obstacle to overcome. The next description uh, that, that Luke gives us of the Christian community can actually be more difficult for some of us to embrace than the supernatural work of God. The next description is that it's a generous community. It says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, again, not for you, but I think for some, there can be an objection when you hear that passage of, so they were communists. Like that's, they, just, they held it all in common. The one guy took it away, and then he gave it away as he wanted. That's, that's not what's being described. Right? What's being described is a form of radical generosity, and the more it intimidates you, the more you need to settle into this passage. And the more you need to begin to understand that generosity is not a requirement or something God forces you to do. It is the natural overflow of a life that has been devoted to Jesus. When you understand what God has done for you, you will become generous towards him and especially toward other believers. Because you begin to understand these are not just people who've placed their faith in Jesus in the same way I have. These are my brothers and sisters. And when it says they came together and they had everything in common, other translations say they held everything in common. It meant that nobody came in with this individualistic expectation of what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours, and let's respect the boundaries and leave each other alone. It's a very American understanding of faith and finances. A more scriptural understanding is you are my brother, you are my sister, and if you are in need and God has blessed me, it is my privilege to be part of his provision in your life. Generosity will always be a hallmark of Christian community. And in, in, in my experience, at Christian Chapel, with my buddies who pastor all around the country, I've interacted with a lot of generous churches, and I've interacted with some stingy churches. And what I've discovered is this. There is never a generous church full of stingy people. And there's never a stingy church full of generous people. And there's never a stingy church that's making a difference in their community. There's never a stingy church that is projecting an attractive model of community that others want to become a part of. And so when we hear generosity, generosity is not the opportunity for us to look down the aisle and think, I think they're better off than I am and they should be generous towards me. And we see that sometimes. Like it could be easy for me to think, I want you to be generous. And that generosity, I mean, I would love it if it showed itself in somebody showing up with a Ford Raptor for me next Sunday, parked out front with a big sign that said, For Chris Dow. And then on the back of that Ford Raptor would be this beautiful ski boat, For Chris Dow, as well. And then there'd be some four-wheelers attached to the back of that. There'd be a pile of money attached to the back of the four-wheelers, right? And the trailer would just kind of wrap all around, and it would just be like Christmas morning going from one to the other. And sometimes that's our view of like, I love that passage. Everyone should sell their stuff and give me stuff. But that's not the primary point. In fact, that's not the point at all. The point is, if God has blessed you and God has blessed me, we're going to take care of each other when we're in need. Because we all know how life works. Right? That, that at some point, all of us will find ourselves in a position of need. It may be physical, it may be financial, it may be emotional, it may be relational. And if God has blessed me in those areas, I'm going to generously share with you. And then when I'm in need and God has blessed you, you're going to generously share with me. And the point is not to elevate one over the other. The point is that we're all just going to have our needs met. 
And I, I can't tell you how much joy it gives me to see this put into practice at Christian Chapel. I mean, in the years that I've been pastor, I have watched as members of Christian Chapel have, have witnessed, either through their home groups, through God speaking to them in times of prayer, or just through conversations, they've witnessed the needs in the life of other people. Might be people in your home group, people you see across the church, people you know slightly. Sometimes it's people they don't know at all. They just heard about a need. And in seasons of unemployment, in seasons of loss, seasons of grief, of sickness, seasons of, of dramatic life change, I've watched as members of Christian Chapel have paid the mortgage of other members of Christian Chapel. I've watched as members of Christian Chapel have taken care of car payments. I've watched as members of Christian Chapel have just bought cars for other people. I've watched as you have stepped in in seasons of medical need and provided groceries. I've watched as you paid for child care for other people. I've watched as members of Christian Chapel have identified a high school student who had no ability to pursue the calling of God on his life and the path God had for him for college, and they just stepped up and said, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to cover it. I've watched again and again and again as you have modeled Acts chapter 2. And what we see is generous communities are made up of generous people. And so the evaluation is not, is everybody else doing what they're supposed to do? The evaluation is, am I doing what I'm supposed to do? Am I willing to be generous with however much or however little God has placed in my hands? And if we are, our generosity will overflow to each other. And eventually it begins to overflow outside the community of faith and into the communities where God has placed us. We begin to meet the needs of those who are yet even to put their faith in Christ. And from that space, we share the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done generosity is not a burden. It's not a, a, a religious weight being placed on you saying God will love you when you're generous. Instead, generosity is a description of what happens when you embrace the love of God. When you understand how radically generous he has been towards you, it will overflow out of you into the world around you. As you keep working through Acts chapter 2, you see they weren't just a generous community, but they were a continual community. Verse 46, it says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. So the, the early church made an effort to include some kind of daily connection with each other in their lives. They met together as often as they possibly could. Now, their, their culture, their way of life was different than ours. Their, their world was smaller. We're a little more spread out. Right? We live in Oklahoma, so we think if we're within 45 minutes of each other, we're neighbors. Um, like it's, it's just no problem at all. You might live halfway to Oklahoma City, and you think Tulsa is where you're from. Right? And, and we just kind of live in this world where distance doesn't mean what it used to mean because we have so many other ways of staying connected to each other. But one of the challenges we face is because it's easy to stay connected to each other kind of in, in other ways, we can neglect the idea of actually physically being together. And part of being in a continual experience of community means I see your face and you see my face. It means I can shake your hand and you can shake my hand. Now, there are life circumstances and situations that challenge that in different seasons and for different reasons. We're not really talking about that. What we're talking about right now is those of us who are perfectly capable of being together regularly, but for some reason or another choose not to prioritize it. What the early church models for us is if you want to be together in community, you have to be together in community. 
in a continual experience. And so they were meeting in large group settings together at the temple. They were meeting in small group settings, gathering for meals in each other's homes. But they were making some sort of daily effort to be connected to each other. I was in a, a meeting with some other pastors this past Monday. And one of them, uh, as we were kind of talking about some different things, he shared some research he'd recently read that said the, the average American church attender who is described as a faithful and regular church participant, attends church an average of 1.8 times per month. So uh, now that's not just Sunday morning only. If that's Sunday morning only, then we could say, okay, that's not terrible, right? That's almost two out of four. They're making it half the time. But in the, the poll that was given, they were evaluating of all the opportunities your church offers for believers to gather together, how many times per month do you participate? So let's just take our setting for the average adult at Christian Chapel. We, in a four-Sunday four month, let's say we meet together four Sunday mornings. We have four Wednesday nights, so there's eight, and then we have two home groups. So in our setting, the opportunities you have to be together would be ten. The average American who is a faithful and regular, according to their definition and the definition of this organization, is somebody who attends two of the ten. That is... I mean, I'm going to blow your mind with some math here. That is 20%. See that? That was on the, I didn't even write that in my notes. 20%. Two out of 10. If you're a teacher and you have a student who succeeds two out of 10 times, what do you call them? I mean, what do you call them publicly, right? Like you might call them some things privately that you have to repent of, but you call them a failing student. And if you're a gym owner, and you have somebody who shows up 1.8 times a month to work out. I mean, you call them like a cash cow. Like, that's great. Please keep paying, not showing up. That's fine. You're not calling them like the model of fitness and strength. If you're a coach and you have a player who shows up 1.8 times a month to practice, what do you call them? Like you call them the end of the bench or off the team? If you show up to work 1.8 times a month and do your job, you're about to be called unemployed, right? If you treat your spouse well 1.8 times per month, you're about to be single. If you discipline your children 1.8 times a month, you're raising terrorists. Like there's just, there's very few things in life where we would be satisfied with a 20% success rate. Like a 20% just really like, I am faithful and regular. I'm nailing this. And yet somehow for for American Christians, we have come to accept that 1.8 times a month is, is, that's a beautiful connection to the body of Christ. That's about all I need. Right? And I'm not saying that to shame you because I know even as we say that, some of you, you've already done the math in your own mind. You're like, I'm (laughs) 7.5. Some of you are 10 out of 10. Some of you come to two services on Sundays. You're 13 out of 10. Like you're, you're, doing, you're earning extra credit, and we are so impressed with you. Some of you came to the 8 a.m., and now you're here, and then you're going to go serve at the Spring Carnival. You're going to be like a 17 out of 10 by the end of this, this year, right? And so, so there's, it's not a competition. It's an opportunity for reflection on, I say I want to be committed to community. I want to experience community, but am I in a continual experience of community? 
Because community in Christ is not one of those things that you do in a certain season. It's not something you just seek out while you're raising your kids so you can get a little help. It's not something you do just in a season of need, loss, or want. But it's a continual experience. It's making some sort of effort every single day to be committed and connected to other believers. And so we, we do that still in many of the same ways that they did in the New Testament. We have large group gatherings and we have small group gatherings. But then beyond that, there comes a point where I have to take responsibility for community beyond what the church provides for me organizationally. And that you do as well. And we have to decide, you know what, my community is going to extend to other believers who live in my neighborhood who don't go to church with me. My community is going to extend other believers that I go to school with, that I work with, other believers that I'm around. My community is going to extend beyond a home group, beyond a Wednesday night, a Sunday morning. And I'm going to begin to open my heart and open my home. And we're going to start to build relationships and real and meaningful friendships. And community will always require effort. It will always, I mean, you read through the New Testament. We're going to get into some of those stories later. They still annoyed each other. They still had differences of opinion. They still had arguments and disagreements. There were still times where the church leaders themselves couldn't even work together anymore, and they had to go in different directions. And yet, even in the midst of all of that, they stayed continually in community. And everywhere the church was established, there was this expectation that we are continually being brought together and being held together in Christ. And then the the last aspect that we see of community in Acts chapter 2 is that it was a growing community. It says, the Lord added to their number daily. So what I want us to understand is when we live in the community that Jesus has described for us, it presents an attractive picture to the world. Because it's unlike any other experience of community you can have. In Christian community, the way it's designed to function, your faith in Christ is your entry ticket. There are no other qualifications, no other criteria that are checked at the door. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what kind of home you grew up in. It doesn't matter how you got to church that morning. It doesn't matter the state of your finances. It doesn't matter the state of your health. It doesn't matter how successful or or how much of a failure you feel like. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter what language you grew up speaking. There's not a holy language that you have to learn to earn access into the kingdom. There are not certain cultural customs that you have to adopt. There aren't modes of dress that you have to embrace. The only entry requirement is faith in Jesus Christ. And so when the world sees a community that is diverse and is loving, a community that holds together through seasons of difficulty, a community that has learned to have hard conversations with one another and love each other on the other side, A community that has learned how to forgive as we have been forgiven. A community where you see a brother or sister in sin and you restore them gently into community. A community where you care about the needs of someone else to the the point that you're willing to use your resources to help them in their season of need or loss. A community where you link arms in service. A community where you come to live for something beyond yourself. A community where you find peace, joy, love, and hope. That kind of community has a magnetic attraction to a lost, lonely, and isolated world. And what we see in the scriptures is as God's people embrace the community he designed them for, the Lord continued to add to their number every day. 
Right? And, and this is the hope of every smaller local church expression of Christianity. Every local church in some way should be a growing community. There's always room for one more. Right? That friend, family, neighbor, coworker, classmate that doesn't yet know Jesus, his plan is that your experience of community will be part of what attracts them into a relationship with the Lord. And what that means for us as followers of Jesus who love the community he's placed us in, is we have to be willing to make room for one more. Because sometimes that's easy to embrace generically, or it's easy for me to embrace for you, but then for my life, there can be times where I feel like, God, you know what? I actually like my community right now. I like the friends I have. I like the number of friends I have. I like the amount of people who go to Christian chapel. I, I like the number of services that we have. I like my home group. And it just barely fits in my living room, and we don't want any more. And if we grow to the point we have to multiply, I don't know that I'm going to like that anymore. If I grows to the point that I don't see all the people I want to see, I don't know that I'll like that anymore. And yet, scripturally, what we see is this idea of, well, you better get over it. Because God is going to add to our number every day. And we're going to have to continue to have open hearts, open hands, open homes. We're going to have to continue to follow the path God leads because if he's going to keep adding, we have to keep adjusting. And just say, hey, that's fine. That's great. These are, these are the most wonderful problems a church can have. Our problems of where do we put all these people that are coming to Jesus? Where, how can we start more home groups? How can we? And when we begin to get that big picture, what we find is it's not God asking us to sacrifice our experience of community of, hey, just I've got my five and no more. It's God saying, let me take you into a fuller and fuller experience of community where more and more are added and the new life you've experienced in Christ is now shared with so many others. Right? Churches that pursue growth just for the sake of growth have missed it. But when you're growing because God is adding to your number, that's an entirely different thing. That's where we want to be at Christian Chapel. That's where we want to be individually is in this place of like, Lord, for as long as you're bringing them, we will adjust, we will adapt, and we will disciple. And we'll introduce them into a community that is rooted in the scripture. We'll introduce them to a community that is built on fellowship together. We will introduce them into a community where the supernatural work of God is on display. We'll introduce them to a generous community. We'll introduce them to a continual community. And in that space, the Lord will add to our number. And and don't think of that, again, in a generic sense, specifically. Think of your friend, your family member. Think of your son, your daughter. Think of your coworker, your classmate. They are the number that the Lord will add to us. And it will be your privilege to welcome them in, your privilege to disciple them, your privilege to see them experience the fullness of life and community that they were created for. If you'll stand with me, I want to pray for us. Then the band's going to come back and lead us in a final song. Jesus, we thank you for... Your grace, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you have not just come to restore our connection to God, but you've come to restore our connection to each other. And so, Lord, today we invite the Holy Spirit to come and speak personally to each one of us about our experience of community. If there are spaces where we are settling for less than what we were created for, will you come and reveal to us, Lord, how we can more fully participate in the community you've called us to? Will you begin to show us, Jesus, the the things that we need to change, the priorities that we need to rearrange, the areas where we need to increase our investment of time and energy?
will we begin to understand that we were not just created to know you and casually know other believers, but we were created to walk in deep and meaningful relationship with you and in deep and meaningful experiences of community with other followers of Jesus. So Lord, will you come today? Will you forgive us for sitting on the fringes? Will you remove the obstacles that we have placed or that others have placed in our lives? And will you help us begin to move forward in a continual life-giving experience of community together? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.